0: We have walked through the book of James, and in doing so, we have examined the different themes that make for practical Christianity. What I'd like for us to do in the time that we have together is to look at what we find there in James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. As we do, I want to begin by asking you if you have seen referenced Petitions, petitions that have been made throughout time. There have been petitions that have been put forward to depose and dethrone kings. There have been petitions for rights and various other petitions that have been offered. I proffer for your consideration the olive branch petition that was given by the Continental Congress on July 5th, 1775 to King George III of England. And in that particular petition, they reached out to him in a last-ditch effort to avert a formal declaration of war. You'll find that they begged and they beseeched. They appealed to him as loyal British subjects. And they appealed to their rights as British citizens. And as they spoke to him, they did so respectfully. And they wished him long life. In good health. But they also outlined what they called the intolerable acts. And so this was put forward. And it was sent across the ocean at a much slower time of uh, water traffic. But it reached him very expeditiously as fast as it could have gone in that day. And in August of 1775, the king of England summarily dismissed and rejected those petitions that were made. And he declared those subjects to be in rebellion. In Romans chapter 13 verse 1 and 2 reminds us that government is ordained by God but it's operated by men. And so a citizen may make a very legitimate and appropriate appeal. But they may be met by a ruthless ruler. You know, Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 14 tells us that by loyalty and truth that the throne is of the king is preserved and it's upheld by righteousness. But we begin to read in James chapter 5 and the example that's alluded to by James when he looks back on Elijah we remind ourselves that Here is a man, Elijah, a prophet of God who's commissioned by him in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. And there are two kings under consideration. (laughs) On the one hand, there is an immoral and and, uh, a a, a king that is unrighteous alongside of Jeroboam, the most (laughs) wicked of the kings that Israel ever had. And there's no way that we could say that he was a righteous king. That loyalty and truth meant nothing to him. And so you have Elijah who is interacting with that arbitrary earthly king. But on the other side of that, we see that there's another king. A king who is interested in listening to the words of Elijah as he offers up his prayers. And he hears that prayer by faith. So as we see what's happening in, uh, first, uh, in James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 it fits with a motif that you'll find in the book of James. It's often said in exegesis that if you want to know what's important to a book, see what's being discussed in the first chapter and in the last chapter. And isn't it interesting that at the beginning of the book in James chapter 1 and verse 5 and verse 6, that there is an appeal made to the audience of James, the ones who are listening to this letter as it's no doubt read among the assembly of the saints. And they are told that they are to ask their prayers in faith. In, in James chapter 1 and verse 5, where they are told that they are to appeal to God. But they're said told to ask in faith with nothing doubting, for he who doubts is like a surf on the sea driven by the waves. But then you get over to James chapter 4 and verse 2 and verse 3, and you will find that prayer that is proper, prayer that's pleasing to God, is one that is asked from proper motives. You may remember that it is said that they are those who asked and they asked it amiss that they might consume it upon their own lust. First problem, they did not ask, and so they did not receive. Second problem, they did ask, but they asked with those improper motives. And then you get to the study that we had in the last hour in James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is any afflicted among you? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him and the Lord shall raise him up. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. And so the criteria for acceptable prayer in James chapter 1, verse 5 and 6 is ask those petitions in faith. James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, ask those petitions with proper motivation James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, ask those petitions in faith. And so what I want you to notice is that Elijah's prayer, as James gets to the last words he's going to say on the subject, Elijah fits the motif on prayer. Does he not ask in faith? Does he not ask in proper motives in the example that James gives to us? So after having taught us those principles in James 5, 13 through 16, and by the way, the man who spoke in the last hour, I don't know if this was bor- borne out by Clint or not, uh, he's my brother-in-law. I don't know if y'all knew that or not. We were also schoolmates in school. David Pomon and uh, Bud and I, I Believe I know y'all were in school together, uh, did a fantastic job on James 5, 13 through 16. But here's the example. The example is that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed to God that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven brought forth its rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. Now right here, what James is showing us is that on the one hand, you have the futility of Elijah reaching out to Ahab, a king who was arbitrary and who was apostate. But on the other side, you have Elijah reaching out to the God of heaven. And he is absolute. He is almighty. And he is authoritative. And what James tells his listeners and what he tells us by extension is, I want you to pray like Elijah. And so we ask ourselves, as we look into this text, how do we pray like Elijah? It is not complicated. There are three observations for us to make. I'd like you to notice them with me. How can we pray like Elijah? Number one, be human. You go to James chapter five and verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Aren't you grateful for an admonition or a principle like that? Is that not the easiest thing for us to accomplish? Can you be human? We are faced with our humanity all the time. And an incredible thing that James wants his readers, us included, to grasp is when you look at the man Elijah and the prayer that he is under consideration from 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings chapter 18, you're going to find some extraordinary, some incredible results. But you know what's so remarkable is that it's prayed by a man who was ordinary. He was pedestrian. That's not to say that his experiences were just like ours because they weren't. When you begin to walk through some of the things that God accomplishes in Elijah's lifetime as the Bible makes it uh, uh, transparent to us, you'll find that he's fed by ravens. Never happened to me before. He rains fire down from heaven. I've never seen that before. He raises a widow's son. Incredible to think. One of the Old Testament resurrections. He takes a whirlwind trip to heaven And while there's remarkable things going on in his life, he's not supernatural. When you begin to look more closely into the man, Elijah, what you find is he's just like we are. And that's the encouragement. Do you see the grand, great things that are going on through Elijah's prayers? That's because of the power of God. But the fact is it's so important because he prayed. The remarkable thing is that he took the time to engage in the practice of prayer. When you look at James in his admonition to them, he's just talked about a righteous man. And he wants them to consider what a righteous man looks like. A righteous man is not a person who is perfect. Because when we look at the struggles and we look at the suffering and we look at the shortcomings of Elijah, we see how he was a man just like we are. In the midst of the brief picture that we get into Elijah's life, I want you to think about some of the difficulties that he faced. First of all, after that great victory up on Mount Carmel, we know that he's discouraged. Jezebel has a death warrant on him, and so he runs ahead, and he goes out toward the wilderness of Beersheba. And as he does, he gets to a certain point and he asks his servant to stay there and he goes a day's journey into the wilderness and he sits under the juniper tree and he prays a petition to God when he says, God, let me die, I'm not better than my fathers. In the depths, in the valley of despair, here is Elijah having just faced that great victory in which, by the way, he had said the same statement, right? As he is proving that the Lord is God and not Baal. As he is standing there, he says, I am the only one. And so here he is also now in that isolation, not wanting to live because he's no better than his fathers. Here you have him saying, I'm the only one left. This is a claim that God disputes. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14 and 18, as gentle as the rebuke is, he's saying, later on, after he gives him his commission, he says, there are seven thousand who have not to, to bow the knee or kiss the bale. But he also is a man who runs in fear of his life. It's because of Jezebel's threat that he's on the run in the first place. In 1 Kings chapter 9, 19 and verse 3, and so when we look at him in his totality, what we find is a man who's just like we are. That encourages me because when I go to engage in the prayer life with God, what I see is that I don't have to be supernatural. All I need to do is pray to the God who is supernatural. And so when I see the kind of prayer life that Elijah is exhibiting for me, and we will look more about that in just a few moments, it encourages me to grow my prayer life every day in my humanity. I'm growing my prayer life. When I come face to face with my blessings, and I'm having a great day, and things are going the way that I need them to in my life, that I can turn around and I can bow my knee to pray to God. But also when I'm burdened down by the problems of this life, I still find myself driving myself on my knees to pray to God. And when it's an ordinary day, when I'm neither too high nor too low, I still find the time and the occasion to pray. And when somebody comes up to me and they want me to pray or I volunteer to pray, I will stop and pray. I will find my prayer list growing all the time, just as it is as I count my blessings. And I'll find myself when I go to pray to God that it will increase. I will begin to pray not only for my family and the folks that I love and that are close to me, but I'll begin to pray for my enemies and I'll pray for rulers. I'll pray for the people that I know well. I'll pray for the people that I don't know at all. I'll pray for works and uh, uh, individuals whose ministries are close and near and dear to my heart. I'll also pray for those that I know very little or nothing about. I'll pray for new Christians. I'll pray for new members. I'll pray for shut-ins. You see, as I look into the life of James, before I look at anything else about his example, I see that I am perfectly capable of praying just like him because as extraordinary as some of the things surrounding his circumstances are, he was a man who had a nature just like ours. The power comes in the one on the receiving end of prayer. But I want you to notice a second thing about the prayer life of Elijah. If we're going to pray like Elijah, not only do we need to be human, but we also need to be fervent. An interesting thing is said here. Do you notice Elijah was a man of like passions as we are? And he prayed, your translation may say earnestly, or it may be a couple of the versions say fervently. But literally the phrase is, Elijah prayed with prayer. There are many who look at this particular uh, phrase and they see a Hebrew idiom. You know, James writes from a very Hebrew perspective. He's writing early on in the history of the church. Perhaps there's more Jews than Gentiles in the body of Christ at this point. And so they see this phrase and they believe that it's an idiom. That means he prayed constantly. Or Elijah prayed again and again. Or he continually, he exerted, he strained himself in prayer. Linsky disagrees with that, but most would say that that's exactly what's happening here. That there's a fervency in the prayer life of Elijah that we see. I think that that's the case. I think what Elijah is pointing out is go back and look into the prayer life of Elijah, and what you'll find is, is here is a man who was intense in his prayer life. You know, I mentioned in the class the other day in illustrations that there was no mention of the actual word prayer in the Old Testament account of Elijah. There are certainly intimations that he was engaged in prayer, but I want you to see the disposition that's involved. There's a fervent seat. That we see first in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 21 and 22. Do you remember? He goes to the house of the widow of Zarephath as God is taking care of him in between the time that he tells uh, Ahab it's not going to rain and he tells Ahab again that it's going to rain now. In between that time, God's taking care of him and keeping him safe on the east side of the Jordan. And so there he goes to this uh, into the wilderness and the ravens feed him and then the brook dries up and then he goes to this widow's house and as he's there, he miraculously, Miraculously uh, supplies her with the meal and the oil and and, in the process of time they don't have a child and so he says you're going to have a child. The child comes, the child dies and so uh, Elijah is wondering to God why has this happened? And he goes into the child at God's direction. And 1 Kings 17, 21 and 22 says that he lays over that child. And he appeals to God fervently to restore that child's life and to revive him again. And there's a passion and a fervency that we see in 1 Kings 17, 21 and 22. And then we look in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36 and 37... And here is at the pitch of the battle, the climax of the debate between whether or not Baal is God or Jehovah is God. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, he appeals to God and he says, O Lord God of Israel, let them know that you're God and I'm your servant who am standing on your behalf. And let them see. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 41, after the time that Elijah's going up and is trying to appeal to God for rain to come, the Bible tells us, uses the language, that he is there and his face is between his knees as he bows to the ground. There is a fervency that describes the prayer life of our man Elijah. In Philippians 4 and verse 6, the Bible says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, notice how you have the Apostle Paul talking about praying with all prayer and all petition and all perseverance for all the saints. There is a fervency that is associated with prayer and intensity of emotion that's to exist as we pray to our God. It's interesting as we look at this fervency to find that there is a discipline of the Christian life that's this zeal, this earnestness. And the New Testament uses different words. There's a word translated fervent that speaks of a couple of disciplines. Over in Acts chapter 18 and verse 25, before he knows the way of truth more perfectly, you have Apollos. And you remember what it says? That Apollos was one who was fervent in spirit, teaching and preaching the word of God. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, the Bible says in the case of the Christians there at Rome that they were to be fervent in spirit in serving the Lord. That word means characterized by enthusiasm and excitement. There was the discipline of their fervency, their passion, their excitement, leading them to teach and preach the word of God and to serve the Lord. And Peter uses yet a different one. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, I want you to be fervent in brotherly love. And as he shows that to us, here's the idea of extending yourself, of reaching yourself out in excitement. When the Bible talks about our disposition and our attitude toward prayer, what God wants is the emotion involved in that. You know, and really, when our emotion is involved and our enthusiasm is involved, we're going to put our whole selves into it. A couple of years ago, Kathy and I were visiting some friends of ours in Spanish Fort, Alabama. And uh, uh, Anna and Justin Maynard are working down there with one of the congregations. And they have some standard poodles. And one of those standard poodles' names is Colton. And Colton, when the Justin says... Do you want to go to church? He goes ballistic. And he has to get in their vehicle, and they'll drive him down to the church building, and when they stop, he'll jump out of the vehicle, and he'll rush up to the door, and he'll wait impatiently until Justin comes up and unlocks the door. And when the door's open, he runs inside, and he does, and I've seen this, he does laps around that large auditorium, (laughs) spins himself, and when he's done, he goes and he runs, and he leaps on one of the couches of Uh, one of the other ministers they say that there is nothing else that they ask him if he wants to do that draws near the excitement as it does when he says you want to go to church you want to go where the saints meet what's remarkable is that here is a, a creature that is not made in the image of god that does not have a never dying soul and yet you look at him and you see his passion is palpable We should not let our presumed superior intelligence keep us from a passion that draws us in believing in prayer to zealously appear before the throne of God. So when I look at Elijah, I see a man of a passion just like mine, but I see a man who prayed fervently, earnestly, that it might not rain. But then I want you to notice something about Elijah's prayer life in the third place. And that is that Elijah, to pray like Elijah, we need to be faithful. Something is said about not only the fervency of the prayer life of Elijah, but also something about the frequency of that prayer life of of his. When we look at the frequency of his prayer life, we may be a little bit deceived if we don't look into the background of what's going on. We're first introduced to Elijah the Tishbite, in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, when he goes up to wicked Ahab and he says to him, That according to the word of the Lord and your servant, as I stand before you, it's not going to reign on the earth for these years except by my word. And then God shelters him for those years and then sends him back in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1 and he says that by the word of God it's going to take place and after the 450 prophets of Baal are defeated and are put to death he goes up to uh, to Ahab and he tells him it's going to rain. And then he goes up, uh, Elijah does up on Mount Carmel and presumably he is appealing to God for the rain to come. Seven times he does this. And then after that seventh time, he lets him know that it's going to take place. And in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 41, when he has his face on his knees, we presume that that has something to do with prayer. But that's all that's said in the Old Testament about this. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 25, Jesus appeals to the historic nature of this account by saying that in the days of Elijah, when there was no rain on the earth by three years and six months, he gives us that time period that matches what James says. And James says that he prayed, and it didn't rain, and he prayed, and it rained again. And so with the frequency we see in James's words, in James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Scripture says he prayed. Verse 18, he prayed again. It's not that Elijah prayed once at the beginning of the 42 months and he prayed again at the end of it. It seems that here's a man who bathed his life with prayer. He understood how important prayer was In the various aspects of his life. Maybe the way that the writer of Kings puts it is he appeals. He addresses. He speaks. He says to God. But in all of this we find in the occasion where there's the widow of Zarephath's son. That he appeals to God three times in the healing of him. The seven times on Mount Carmel, the very public time in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 36 when he speaks to God. And then there's the occasions in 1 Kings 19 We have the three pitiful exchanges of Elijah with God in which he appeals to him. He is showing us here is a man throughout the crises and and throughout the victories of his life. He is appealing to God with a frequency of prayer that uh, James wants his readers to imitate we think about the frequency of prayer we think about the early church and what we see is that this was a people who through the victories and the struggles of their early existence that they found themselves praying to God and so you'll find a word that is used throughout to speak of them in this discipline of prayer you'll find the word devoted In Acts chapter 1, and verse 14, we find the saints who are waiting for Jesus' words to be fulfilled, which he said, go to Jerusalem, and there wait until you are endowed with power from the Spirit on high. And as he speaks to them, and as they're waiting there, we see that they devote themselves to prayer. And then in Acts chapter 2, we find the first converts to the church, and right after they gladly received the word, Luke tells us in Acts 2, and verse 42, that they continued steadfastly in prayer. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, we have one of the early problems in the church where the Grecian widows are not having their needs met. And so you you find the apostles being approached on how do you solve this. And he says, you find some men from among yourselves because we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, he says, I want you to devote yourself to prayer. And then over in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, Be devoted to prayer to do so with the spirit of thanksgiving. When Jesus is instructing his disciples on what kingdom living will look like, he says, I would that men pray at all times, Luke 18 and verse 1. As we saw in the last hour, one of the appeals of scripture is to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 at evening, and in morning, at noon will I pray and cry aloud and you will hear my voice. Psalm 55 and verse 17. In Psalm 141, verse 1 and 2, you have David as he describes the prayer life of a child of God. And what you'll see is that it's a prayer life that is urgent. It is a first retreat for him. It is not a last resort. It's intense. It's not rote and lethargic. It is a a cry and a plea unto God, and it's sincere. He says, I want you to treat this like incense offered to you, and I want you to see it like the uh, evening offering of sacrifice. He says, here are my prayers. I want to lay them out before you for the inspection of the Almighty, and I want you to see that I am constant. I'm continual in prayer. We're studying a great book. It was a book that was recommended by Hiram. We're teaching through that book on Sunday morning. It's about the disciplines of the Christian life by Donald Whitney. And the suggestion is from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 that we've got to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And when you think about the example that we have here, when we talk about the frequency and the faithfulness of prayer, do you look at your life and see yourself as one who has engaged in a static way in the practice of prayer? If you were to draw out your prayer life on a graph, do you see it at some point, maybe in the infancy of your spiritual lives, when you first became a child of God, as one who prayed very little or not at all? And as you've continued down that road, that you have found yourself more frequently praying? Has it, has it gone like that? Or more likely, has it been up and down? see, James is speaking to these people who are struggling through a number of adversities. And I want you to walk through that with me for just a moment. What are the people that James is writing going through? They're going through trials, James chapter one, verse two through four. They're going through temptation, James chapter one, verse 13 through verse 16. They're going through this tendency to hear the word of God, but not to do it. James chapter one, verse 18 through 25. They're going through a struggle with an unbridled tongue. James chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 and chapter 3 verse 2 through 12. They're struggling with prejudice and favoritism. James chapter 2 verse 1 through 13. They're struggling with faith without works. James chapter 2 verse 14 through 26. They're struggling with sins of attitude. James chapter 3 verse 13 through verse 18. They're struggling with quarrels and conflicts. James chapter 1 verse three uh, 1 through 3. They're struggling with worldliness. James chapter 4 and verse 4. They're struggling with pride. James chapter 4 verse 5 through verse 10. They're struggling with judging one another. James chapter 4 verse 11 through verse 13. They're struggling with procrastination. James chapter 4 verse 13 through 18. They're struggling with materialism. James chapter 5 verse 1 through verse 6. Now let me ask you do you struggle with any of those things in your own personal spiritual lives? Does the church where you attend have those struggles in your spiritual life? You see, the adversities are going to continue to come, and so we must continue in the discipline of prayer. There is so much to keep us in the posture of prayer. And so, what Elijah does is, is, he, or James, he looks back on Elijah and he says, I want you to see a man who's just like you are, and yet your prayers like his can reach the very throne of God and be a sweet smelling savor and incense to him. But I want you to believe in that prayer and know that it's going to be be according to God's will. It's going to be what God knows is best for His purpose and even God's caring and looking into our lives and what's best for us. So don't let up. So what can help to keep us faithful in prayer? Let's talk about just a couple of things. The first suggestion is if we're going to develop greater faithfulness in prayer is that we need to pray with a pen and paper in hand, or an electronic equivalent. There's something that's incredible that happens when you write down the things that you want to pray about. It's the same thing that happens when you write down and count your blessings. Doesn't that list begin to grow? Make categories, and make subcategories, in which you write in there those different areas of praise and thanksgiving and petition and as you faithfully build that prayer list, it'll also become a gauge. It'll be a way for you to count and see how God has been faithful in prayer. You can come back. It'll be a means of your gratitude when you look and see how God's been at work through the yeses and the noes and maybe or something better or different. You'll see how God is at work and it will build your faith in the presence of God in your life as you pray to Him. Pray with a pen and paper or electronic equivalent in hand. Maybe set yourself some reminders. And through that, allow it to, to be a reminder for you to go to God in prayer. Pray with pen and paper in hand. But then also build a prayer closet or find a prayer shelter. Find a, isn't there a time of day where you find prayer to be more effective? Isn't there a place where you find yourself less distracted than at other times? You know, Jesus would encourage you to go there. In practicing that true, deeper righteousness, he would urge you not to let your prayers be seen of men, but instead, he says, go into your inner room and there pray to your God who sees in secret and that God will reward you. Find a place and a time where you can go in concentrated effort. You know, in Luke 5 and verse 16, the Bible says that Jesus often went off alone. We've been to Israel several times and it's suggested that perhaps Mount Arbel is that place where Jesus went alone and prayed. It's the highest mountain around the Sea of Galilee. And it looks over that tranquil sea that, by the way, Colossians 1.16, Jesus created in the first place. And Jesus stood over and prayed. Where's your Mount Arbel? Where's your place where you can go without distraction and pray to God? You need it because of the pressures and the problems that are pressing in. But another suggestion we would make is be a better Bible student. Do you wanna be more faithful in your prayer life? And maybe you don't see the immediate connection that there is to prayer by being a better Bible student. And I don't just mean to pray the model prayer of Matthew six, verse nine through 13, but pray the Psalms and pray other great passages in the Bible, adapt them, put them into your own words and pray them back to God recognize your dependency on Him as you go to Him in prayer. But as you study the Word of God, what it's going to do is it's going to help you to appreciate who God is. You'll know more about His nature. You'll see more about His promises. You'll see more about His warnings. And through that, it will mature your prayer life in the way that you pray. You'll also look back on Bible characters in the past and you'll see how God responded to them. And it will help you as you pray to God but also discipline yourself to enjoy prayer. Get away from the idea that it's an obligation, that, that you feel guilty if you haven't put in some kind of arbitrary three or four minutes in prayer. But as you develop and deepen your relationship and you see prayer as fellowship with God, as you find yourself in a more ongoing conversation with Him, you will find that you enjoy, that you come to need Prayer. James is writing to an audience who's dealing with a variety of struggles, struggles that we have looked at as we have walked through the book of James this weekend. They're people who needed to constantly stay in prayer. If Equipped is going in 25 years and, and I can put in a request, maybe at that time uh, they'll be rich and, and Jew to get a chance to, 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 pray, to preach. That'd be great, I'd love to see that. But I have found in the new phase of life that there's new reasons to pray. I remember when I was a sophomore at Faulkner University, it was a few months before I would met her. And at the ripe old age of 19, I thought that I was gonna be alone forever. And so I prayed for God to, to send me somebody. My prayers were very focused and probably a lot more selfish and immature. But God in his graciousness sent me the greatest earthly blessing that I've ever received. And then we prayed as newlyweds for the birth of children. And God blessed us three times. And you know, if you remember, if you you are, are not now currently the parents of small children, if you are, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but there's those pensive moments the first major physical crisis of health that you go through. And perhaps there's the financial difficulties that you suffer as young couples. And there's all that happens in that phase of life. And you find yourself so in need of God's help and His deliverance. And then you get to a place perhaps where you can get your feet under you a little bit better. And yet there are other struggles. Maybe there's spiritual trials that come. Or maybe there's the pull in the fight of worldliness. You find yourself in need of prayer. And then as those children continue to grow and they develop and they get to a ma- more mature place, you find the nature of your prayers for them changing. And then you're praying for their mates and then you're praying for their children and then you're praying about your future. You're praying about your parents and perhaps the, the new relationship you'll have in having to take care of them. There's so much all along the way that will drive us to prayer if we're building a relationship with him as we need him more, we'll know him better. You know, his name means my God is Jehovah. And I don't have any idea if his parents were devout at all. But they certainly were prescient in looking at how God was going to use Elijah and how Elijah saw his God. And it's incredible when you look at the life of Elijah that you have a man who God sent to Israel in its time of greatest spiritual decline. If you think about the fact that Ahab was married to the more wicked Jezebel. And that during this period of time, some of the most wicked kings in a wicked set of dynasties in Israel had just come to the throne. Men who were guilty of drunkenness and murder and treason and want and idolatry. And God says to Elijah, now's the time I want you to go on the scene. And so when its uh, iniquity was at its height, God sends Elijah in to teach and to preach. The time of great spiritual decline. And the tasks that God gave Elijah were terribly difficult. When you consider the fact that what he says to him is, go up to this wicked king Ahab, a murderer, and tell him there's not going to be any rain. And then I want you to go and kill 450 prophets of Baal. And then after that, I want you to go to Ahab and Jezebel and tell them about the judgment of mine on them because of Naboth's vineyard. But you know, God also did great things for him and through him. Yes, we said he fed him with ra- ravens. He, he brought fire from heaven twice on his behalf. He brought the meal and the oil for the widow. He raised the widow's son. He, cro- he parted the Jordan for him. And then there was that world. Wind, ride to heaven. He was a man of morality. He was a man of courage. He was a man of faithfulness because he was a man of prayer. That's what James wants for his audience, and that includes you and me. So let's be human. Let's be fervent, and let's be faithful in prayer and remember his example.